kind of covering a few little little spots here, but I wanted to cover announcements first. So um, we have baptism. It was planned to be in like a week or two, and some things came up, so it's pushed off a little bit. So if anyone's interested in being baptized, whether you don't know what it is, you have never before, or you want to again for one reason or another, um, talk to myself, someone up here on the prayer team. You can send an email to info at bridgebham, um, dot org or um, uh, and ask some questions, and we can connect during the week or do whatever needs to be done to facilitate that for you. So, Also, um, Ski to Sea happens in town. I think, did it happen last year? Does anyone know? Everything, it seems like everything kind of stopped for a while. <laughs> uh, so a couple of years ago, we, we just helped with one portion, clearing a trail, uh, the gravel ride. This, I think they call it the cyclocross. It comes from Ferndale into Bellingham. And so we kind of helped clear the trail and get it ready. So Scott Hilton, who kind of headed that up last time, he's asking for some folks. If anyone's interested, it's a Saturday, I'm sure. So I actually just met him for the first time this morning, but we know a lot of the same people. So it's kind of neat to see how connected he is in Bellingham and really his role that he, that the Lord has placed him in at this point is just to, to support the local churches and just be a part of what's going on and support pastors in different ways. And so JJ looks up to him and asked him to come and, and share a word this morning. So get ready. Come on up, Paul. Well, let me uh, just look at all of you. Uh, it really is a privilege and an honor when JJ contacted me about uh, being able to share with you. I have, uh, my wife and I have two grown sons, but we came to Bellingham in 1985 from Edmonds, just north of Seattle. And I was 15 years as executive pastor at Hillcrest Church on the south side of town. I uh, left town for two years to do an interim work down in Lake Stevens, a church there in Everett, and then came back to Bellingham and served at Bellingham Covenant Church on Bakerview for 16 years. So very rare for a pastor to serve uh, two different churches in the same community, be welcomed back to both of those, but also welcomed back to the broader church of Whatcom County. Um, I've been in this, I don't use the word retirement, I call it reassignment. Uh, we never finish our time, whether it's a role as a pastor or as a follower of Jesus. We just get reassigned to different specific ministry. And so one of the great joys for me now is to do what I am privileged to do this morning, and that is come into churches that my discipline all through those years on Sunday morning, as I would pray for our service, was to pray for my friends all around Whatcom County that hold Jesus Christ at the center and that are declaring the gospel of our Lord. And that is such a joy to, before I entered my sanctuary to see my flock, is to just visualize the broader church. And so this morning, I invite you to see that you are not alone. And in fact, especially here in the core of our city, to know that Jeff Flint over at First Baptist Church just down the way is a close colleague of J.J. Uh, up the way at uh, the Fountain Christian Church 
is Rick Qualls, and later this afternoon, another church with Chris Eltridge. I could go on and on and share just the churches that meet down in the corridor of this city that have a heart as you do for ministry right in the neighborhood where you're located. Plus, I'm a little bit jealous of JJ because what church has a pastor that can both preach the word and is a logger? You know, the guy can top trees. I've talked to him about doing some work around our place. But uh, I love J.J.'s passion uh, for the gospel and his love for you as a church. So um, here's my question to start with this morning. If you are asked to introduce yourself at a party or a social gathering or you meet a new person, uh, what do you highlight in terms of how you describe yourself to a newcomer? Do you describe yourself first by your role? If you're married, do you say, I'm a husband, I'm a wife? Are you a widow? Are you a widower? Are you a grandpa or a grandma? Do you still see yourself as a brother or a sister, a son, or a daughter at whatever stage of life you are at. Maybe you describe yourself by your vocation. That's often the first thing we lead with. I do this. What are the jobs that you've held? Do you introduce yourself by your ethnic background? This past week, all of our Irish friends got to trumpet. We all became Irish, right, a few days ago. Uh, are you Asian? Are you Native American? Do you lead with your ethnicity? Do you lead with your hobby? I love to fish. I'm a quilter. I'm a musician. Or maybe you lead with your sports team identification. I'm a Washington State Cougar. I'm a University of Washington Husky. Or if you really want points, I'm a Gonzaga Bulldog. Because we love winners, and they won a close game last night. They're still in the brackets, and they're doing well. Well, there's a lot of ways that we can identify ourselves. And really, every morning when you wake up, you make a decision about how you're going to identify yourself to the people you meet. It may have to do with the clothes you wear. What do I want to present in how I look? It may have to do with how you greet the first people that you meet. And it may have to do with what you put into your social media. There's a lot of ways that every day we describe ourselves. This morning, I want to focus on uh, the Apostle Paul. And his favorite phrase was, In Christ. If anybody asked the Apostle Paul who he was, would you introduce yourself I know he would have first said, I am in Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's kind of summed up in one of the favorite verses I'm sure you're familiar with in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Paul summarizes the identity piece of what happens in our life when we turn our lives over to Christ with this very simple two-word phrase, in Christ. Well, 
Before I open up the text, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we're humbled by the truth of your word that says you dwell in us, that our spirits are transformed because of the presence of the Spirit of Christ, the very Holy Spirit of God. Thank you for these truths that are too wonderful for us to understand. They put us on our knees. And I pray for that wonder and that awe as I bring the word today. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I've entitled the message today, Encounters with Jesus. Uh, J.J. let me know that you're in a series where he basically gave me some freedom. He said, just talk about Jesus. Well, that's pretty easy. I like that. And, and just as a side note, uh, I go back to the early days of Calvary Chapel. It was born out of a revival movement, as you, most of you know, in Southern California. Even though I was a Seattle kid, I made a lot of trips down to Los Angeles and hearing the various bands that played at Chuck Smith's church in Costa Mesa and also hearing him preach and inductively go verse by verse through the scriptures, which was the power of that. And yet that is not some event that happened 50 years ago. That was a revival that many church historians would say was the last major revival that happened in America. And I was privileged in the fall last uh, September to be at Biola University in Los Angeles where they commemorated a 50th anniversary of the Jesus Revival in Calvary Chapel in particular. And some of the folks that are my age would remember the band Love Song and Chuck Gerard, second chapter of Acts. And many of these bands, they figured we better get these people back while they're still alive. And so they did, but it wasn't for the purpose like going to the casino to hear some tribute band. This was for the purpose, because I talked to the president of Biola, he says, I want today's students to hear the personal stories of these young people who were saved 50 years ago and ask the question, why not us today? Why not a similar revival in today's youth? And so Calvary Chapel born out of that, but the joy for me over the last 50 years has been to see the Calvary Chapel churches staying true to the word verse-by-verse verse inductive study, you can hardly go anywhere in a Calvary Chapel and not see that as central to the Scriptures. Well, today we're going to just, I, I chose three texts uh, of what I've called Encounters with Jesus. And the first one is a very, the first two are very familiar, but the third one I think is going to throw you off a little bit. So the first two, you've heard sermons about these, and I'm not going to go in depth. But the first one I call it, it's a woman who was looking for love in all the wrong places. An old song, old country song, you know. Don't, aren't country songs great? Because they just tell it like it is. You know, I love that, you know, the titles often tell you all you need to know. And this old song from the 80s, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman that encountered Jesus at the well, we know was looking for love in all the wrong places. First of all, she was Samaritan, which most of you know was a mixed race. They were a race that came out of 
the exile. Hundreds of years earlier, when the Jews were taken captive to Babylon, those who were lame, invalids, people on the margins were left behind. Why take them on a journey that they might not even survive to go to Babylon? And so those people were left, those Jews, and they intermarried with other Gentile, non-Jewish folk, and that's where the Samaritan tribe came from. And so here we are hundreds of years later when Jesus is at the well with a woman who's a mixed race, probably middle-aged. She's been rejected by men and women because of her lifestyle. She is a relational train wreck. She's had five previous marriages and husbands, all failed, and now she's currently living with a man and is unmarried. So let's look at the text that summarizes this. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Next slide. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And so Jesus said, You're right in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five, and the one you now have is not your husband. And she responded, what you have said is true. And then the woman responded, go ahead and put that back up. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Obviously relationally damaged a broken view of herself as a woman. Her identity likely was surrounded by her relationships with men, her desire to have someone who would accept her, who would love her, who would stay with her in the brokenness of her previous relational tragedies. She identified herself by her relationships with men. Not uncommon. Many of us seek after that, and we're still seeking after it, after we leave a trail like she did behind us of broken love. But here's the fun part. All indications are that this Samaritan woman became a follower of Jesus. In John 4.40, just a few verses in the same chapter, It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She didn't just hide this stuff. She was out boldly proclaiming the encounter that she had with Jesus. She was honest about her sin. And you even see the tenderness in that short text that we just read. She didn't deny the fact that she had these previous relationships. And she also said to Jesus, I can see that you are a prophet. There was humility when she encountered true love for the first time. So our relational brokenness has the potential of being healed by an encounter with Jesus, and our identity no longer 
has to look in other places, but our true acceptance and our only understanding of love can finally come from its true source. Our search for love needs to find itself in the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. The second encounter that I want to look at is a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. I've had a chance to visit Israel a couple of times, and there's many places in the old city of Jerusalem that they have identified were places where wells were located. In one of our trips, we just sat by one of these places and just imagined what it would be like not to turn on a faucet in our homes in the morning and shower and drink water, whatever, but we would all leave our homes, go out with our bucket, and you'd see everybody. You know, your hair is all matted and on one side, you got your bathrobe on and your slippers, whatever you wear in the morning, and everybody's shuffling out with a bucket of water. Hey, Frank, how you doing? That's the scene. So let's look at John. Again, the Gospel of John, but now chapter 5. There is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid, forget this, 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This has always struck me in a a very uncomfortable way. Because if you're disabled for 38 years, how can you not define yourself by your condition? How could you not be that the first thing? If somebody walked up to you and you're lying by this pool, they've seen you there for possibly 38 years. How could you not say, Here I am again, another day by the pool. And here Jesus asks one of the most strangest things in all the encounters in the Gospels. He appears to be the most least caring person in Jerusalem. People knew this guy. He was probably pitied. The poor man, he's a fixture on the street. And just as an aside, this is a sobering thing for us who know every corner in Bellingham that every day somebody comes out of the woods or out of their tent and places themselves in that spot. You know exactly the ones that you drive by every day. And they're similar persons that you see, that man or woman, that place. And so here Jesus says, do you want to get well? I would have cringed in embarrassment if I was a disciple standing by Jesus. Like, he has lost it. We thought he knew how to deal with people and bring compassion. But here he is talking to the guy that everybody knows has been there for 38 years. And he says, do you want to get well? But as we 
meditate on this story, we realize Jesus was, yes, talking about physical healing, but he was getting behind something. He was getting behind the man's identity. It was all wrapped up in his physical condition. And Jesus was saying to him, I offer truth. I offer physical healing. But ultimately, I offer what you really need. And that is a savior. It's profound when you think about it. And the even better part of the story is the man didn't rise up in indignation and flip Jesus off or just shake his fist at him and say, who the heck are you to tell me this? But there was something going on in the man's heart and there was a softness that accepted the question, do you really want to get well? The suffering man was raised from a dead spiritual state and was raised to new life because his heart hadn't become completely hardened by all those years of this physical malady. He received physical wellness, but the greatest gift he, gave, he, was, he received was spiritual wholeness. And so this reminds us that in our understanding of our own identity, as difficult as this may be, and Lord knows, as I've gotten older, i got more things going on in this old physical body. But if I let those things define me, that can also work in reverse, and my spiritual con condition can atrophy. And so this story reminds me that my identity is not even in those things that you wake up in the morning and say, God, one more day of struggling with this but it's in the fact that I want spiritual wellness. And that'll be true to the day I die. One of the things I enjoy doing right now is uh, the Willows uh, retirement community over by St. Joe's. Uh, once COVID was opening up last summer, they invited pastors to come back in and do some services. And so I signed up to do a monthly prayer service and worship service with a group of folks. And I mentioned to them last week, we met on last Thursday, and I just said, you know, if, if any group has an understanding of their mortality, it's people <laughs> in senior living communities. They're not sitting around primping their hair and trying to look like, you know, they're, they got it all going. Uh, they know that the physical tent that they live in is short term. And it's a healthy place. And that's why I go in there. Because I pray that God can use me with people who no longer are fooling themselves that they're immortal and remind them that there is a spiritual wellness that can come regardless of the physical challenges that they have. Our spiritual deadness, our spiritual apathy must return to bring Jesus at the center of our identity. So encounter one was the Samaritan woman, encounter two, this lame man, and here's the third one, and hopefully I'll catch you off guard on this one. Simon the, Bull, the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. Anybody know where this guy comes from? He's listed in the 12 
disciples. This guy is in the inner circle of Jesus. But we only have two scriptures that describe him in very little detail. And so the one, the text is actually from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, if you'd put that up. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, who he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Those are kind of the ones that we hear about. We hear about Matthew, Thomas, James. There's two Jameses, right? James, son of Alphaeus. And here's our friend, Simon, who was called the Zealot. And then two Judases, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Luke just summarizes these 12. Obviously, half of them, we have much more biography. It's like a movie when the character is not very developed, and you're just like, tell me more about this person. But Luke just chooses to say this very concise statement, Simon, who is called the zealot. And I put political zealot in there because there were four main religious movements during Jesus' time. We hear a lot about the Pharisees. They were the largest group. They were fastidious about the Jewish law. They were the guardians of historic Judaism. We might call them the religious fundamentalists of their time because they tended towards legalism. They were so intent on protecting historic Judaism that they made that their litmus test as Pharisees. Another group of religious leaders were called the Sadducees. These were the religious liberals. They were very different than the Pharisees. They enjoyed the wealth that came from their religious trappings, and they held the position of aristocrats in that culture. Again, we hear most about those two. There's a third group called the Essenes. And if you've looked at all about the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the history of our scriptures, the Essenes were separatists. They were those that said, I'm going to the hills. I'm going to go live out in Maple Valley. I'm going to go out into the hinterlands of the Cascades. I've learned in my pastoral ministry in Washington over the years that a lot of separatists go and live out in the hinterlands, especially in the foothills of the Cascades, for a variety of reasons. The Essenes lived in the desert. They were ascetics that personally tried to simplify their lives. They were devoted to purity. And that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were found there, because they meticulously copied the Holy Scriptures in their separatist life in the desert. Well, the fourth group, they were the Zealots. This is where Simon comes in. The Zealots were political revolutionaries. They were Jews. They were also terrorists. They hated the Romans and the fact that the Romans had them under their thumb. Their goal was to overthrow Roman occupation. They were a small band that did a lot of things in guerrilla warfare. They advanced their agenda through acts of violence and terrorism. 
this is Simon the Zealot. An interesting choice for Jesus. But we don't know anything more than Luke identifying him with this radical group of terrorists. Until we get to Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. It's the only other reference in the scriptures. And it's Luke again, because Luke wrote both his gospel as well as the book of Acts. And he records this following the resurrection that Simon is listed after the day of Pentecost as one of those who was still following Jesus. And so what I'm left to surmise is that Simon made it through the journey to the cross, the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven as there was a group that literally saw Jesus rise to the right hand of God the Father. Now, in my thinking, I'm, I'm not really a political kind of guy, but we see it all around us, right? Politics is, especially over the last three years, has just been put in our face every day. The news feed, regardless of which one you choose to follow, the issues are seen through a political ideology. It's really hard to find a news feed that is trying to be moderate and try to treat uh, the full spectrum of opinion fairly. Uh, breaking news is a meaningless phrase anymore, right? Every 10 minutes, breaking news! Some politician took a drink of water. It's a meaningless phrase because they're only feeding us one particular view. Well, that's the world that Simon lived in. He saw the future of his own country through the eyes of an ideology, and the ideology was destroy the Romans. But here we see in the book of Acts somebody who's following Jesus. And my conclusion is that Simon the Zealot went from putting all of his hope that even the political answers that he was seeking through being a terrorist and undermining Roman rule, now his hope was transferred to putting hope in the kingdom of God and the message that Jesus brought. I tell you, friends, that is a radical transformation. And it's a transformation that we need Today, as I see so many young people, especially, who are putting their hope in a political ideology. They're believing that political leaders of all stripes can bring peace to this world. And Jesus didn't promise that. In this world, you will have trouble. He promised the very opposite of that, and yet we fall prey to thinking that the answers can happen because, and I think this is the number one thing that fools us, we've had such great advances in technology that why can't we do that in all facets of life? If medically we can advance, why can't we do it with the human spirit? And yet time after time, these things fail. Psalm 9 verse 8 says this, he judges the world with righteousness 
and he judges the peoples with uprightness. The longing in the human spirit for peace, for justice, for equity will never be met with our feeble human means. I'm grateful for our justice system in America, but we know that our justice system will ultimately fail. I would much rather put my life on the altar before God's pure and holy justice than I would put my life before a judge that I don't know how he's going to judge my life. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, But the Lord of hosts, he is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in his righteousness. Do you long for that kind of a kingdom? That's where we need to steer those who are political activists who think that somehow God's kingdom is not sufficient and we need the help of our own political, business, economic leaders. Let me share a story with you that I think illustrates this. In my later years, when I served at Hillcrest Church on the south side of Bellingham in the late 90s, a woman started attending our church. She was in her late 60s. And I met her through a membership class. Uh, and she told me a bit of her history. And her identity, what she described was, I would call her a classic Bellingham counterculture hippie. Only in her 60s. And she went on to chronicle the fact that she was at the Civil Rights March with Martin Luther King in the 60s. She marched against Vietnam. She marched for women's liberation. All of the things that my generation was aware of and passionate about. And in the 80s, as time moved on, she was passionate against nuclear energy. And she protested in the streets as we saw that movement come through our country. She chronicled all these things, and I'm kind of like, you're kind of like Forrest Gump. I mean, you've been at all these famous places. But here was the telling point, and I honor her for her honesty to me at that time. She looked at me, and she, she didn't even know me. It was brand new to her. But she said, Pastor... I've been passionate about those causes and many more through my entire life. And here I am in my late 60s, and my life is an empty shell. And when she said that, I heard the softness of heart that I am describing in these encounters with Jesus this morning. She was humble enough to say, after all this hard work that she felt like she had been railing against the man, against government, against the systems that are oppressive and so forth, she had come to the humble conclusion that her life was still empty. She stayed attending our church. She continued to hear the gospel of Jesus. And I had the privilege of baptizing her as a follower of Jesus. Then fast forward about 12 years, about 2010-ish, 
had moved on to Bellingham Covenant Church, as I told you, on the north side of town, but a, a colleague of mine at Hillcrest called and said she was dying in our hospice house. And if you've never seen it, it's a very sacred and wonderful place on the south side of town over by Joe's Gardens. And he said, she's dying, would you come and visit her? So I did. I walked into the room, and all of those memories came back to me about this woman who had spent the majority of her life identifying herself as a political activist and one who was going to bring, she was going to change the world. But the final 12 years of her life, she embraced the kingdom of God. She embraced an identity that was no longer tied to political ideology, but it was motivated out of supreme love, being accepted for the first time. And I was able to anoint her with oil and release her into the Lord's care. God's kingdom is the only thing that is truly just, holy, and righteous. And that's what Jesus talked about pursuing. That needs to be at the center All of these things are important that define us as people. But when we lose Christ at the center, we lose our identity in him. And so we've talked about three different people, three very different identity at their core. They were all spiritually dull. But the good news is you can see in each story There was a softness of heart. There was openness one more time to say, I don't think I can figure everything out myself. I'm not that good. And their humility led them to once again receiving identity in Jesus Christ. I could have brought up another disciple. Because this one intrigues me. We all know, we know more about Matthew because he wrote a gospel, right? What was his identity? I am a lawyer. I am good with finance. But you know what side of the political spectrum he was on? He was the opposite of Simon the Zealot because Matthew, as a Jew, he's in bed with the Romans. He's getting his paycheck from the oppressor, and he's happy about it. And so he was hated by the Jews. Now, this is where it gets complicated. Jesus says, Simon and Matthew, I'm putting you in the same room with the same 12. How about that conversation? You think Facebook conversations are bad? Holy cow. I can't imagine how Simon the Zealot and Matthew could get along other than They both were in the process of changing their identity from political tribe to the kingdom of God. I could have talked about the rich young ruler, or I call him the rich young materialist. That's a very famous and well-preached text. This young man defined himself by what he could produce economically. 
Peter and John, we know a lot about them. What was their nickname? The Sons of Thunder. They're picking a fight when no fight needs to happen. The encounters with Jesus are wonderful places for us to return to when we are losing our own identity to the stuff of life. And please hear me, it's normal. It's normal to look at ourselves and identify ourselves by all the different factors that I've said. But the joy of following Jesus is the recalibration every day when you wake up and say, am I going to define myself by this or am I going to define myself first and foremost by who I am in Jesus Christ? In the last 50 years in America, we've seen an explosion of self-help speakers and resources and and the, the, on your Facebook feed, that stuff just comes at you. Here's the next podcast of somebody that says, if you just do this, you'll be a happy human being. So the culture preaches finding, creating, and protecting your own identity. And this is epidemic. As a pastor, I, I, I'm deeply concerned that we're creating a culture of narcissists because Identity politics, identity everything is so strong in our culture. I think it is the idol of our age. And so Jesus said, I didn't come to die to make you more secure in your self-image. I didn't die to help you feel better about your identity. I died so that you could crucify that in your own life. And no longer be defined by it. Jesus doesn't wipe it away. But now there's something different at the core. So I'm not defined by my ethnic background, by my family history, by my gender, by my socioeconomic status, by my age, by my health, or any other marker you want to plug in there. And so to wrap everything up, I just wanted to give you three summary points in scriptures. The first one is that, as you know very well, we die to our own identity. That is the call, especially during this season as we approach Easter. You come after me, deny yourself, and follow in the way of the cross, 1 Corinthians 6.11. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Such were some of you. He's referring to the folks at that congregation. He's saying, you were like this, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Can you just hear that on a Sunday morning? Everybody walks in, they're defining themselves by all the stuff we've been talking about. And Paul just says, that's what some of you used to be, reminder. And so the new identity is centered on what God has accomplished for us, what he is creating in us now because his spirit is alive in us, and ultimately the destiny that he's promised for us in heaven. Maybe it's a function of my age, but I love the phrase from the Apostles' Creed, 
that says, On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You can't get any better than that in terms of picturing where Christ is seated in the heavenlies. And that God dwells within me and he is at work. The second summary point, we now belong to somebody else. This is made very clear by the early apostles. As they reflected on what had happened to them in encountering Jesus, they realized they no longer owned their life. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, you are not your own. Paul is specifically speaking to sexual immorality there, but he's making the point that in every area of life, do you not realize you were bought with a price, and so honor God with your body. The ownership of your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, has changed. I've been fortunate to be married to the same lady for 43 years. And I wear this ring as a symbol of many, many things. But one of the main things it reminds me of is I'm not my own. 43 years ago, I could have said, I'm just going to be a single guy and go live my life and make decisions and blah, blah, blah. And fortunately, my wife and I were humble enough to realize if we make this commitment... We belong to somebody else. And when I am tempted to stray, I got something right on that finger. It reminds me, this is not my decision alone, but I am linked forever with this lady. The final thing is that we find our true identity and self in Jesus. It's really the summary statement of what I've been trying to say today. We can look for it in so many different ways. But like the woman I mentioned earlier that had been to all the protests, in your quietest moment, when you're all alone and there's no other influence around you, can you say, is it well with your soul? My favorite scripture along this line is Galatians 2.20. Where the Apostle Paul summarized it in such a concise way. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Paul took it that literally. That he was a dead man raised to life because Christ lives in him. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We die to our old identity, we belong to somebody else, and our true self is only found in Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, the question is, the same one that Jesus asked the man by the pool, do you want to get well? It's a wonderful question pastoral question but it's a Jesus question wherever you're at in your life this morning 
do you want to get well? In any area that the Holy Spirit might be putting his finger on today. Jesus doesn't want us to fall back into those false identities that we see daily in our culture. He wants us to resist the cultural lies, resist the empty promises that advertisers give us every moment of every day, and to resist the misdirected priorities that bombard us. Once those things are put in proper perspective, true joy, true identity is then found in our Lord and Savior. The last thing I want to say before the the band comes up to lead us in a worship response is I want you to rejoice this morning if you are a follower of Jesus. Rejoice. You are a son. You are a daughter of the king.